This is The Feed. From Markham. From Richmond Hill. From Vaughn. From Aurora. East Gwillimbury. Whitchurch, Stouffville. From everywhere you are. This is The Feed, York Region's only news magazine dedicated to the issues, events, and stories that matter to all of us who live and work here. Welcome to The Feed. I'm Ann Romer. On the show, will soaring gas prices convince you to buy an electric vehicle? We're on the worst roads with the CAA and support for first responders. But we begin with the possibility of a sixth wave. (gasps) Say it ain't so. Wastewater data and other indicators are pointing to a spring surge of COVID in Ontario fueled by a subvariant of Omicron, BA2. Health experts in Quebec are suggesting that province is already in wave number six, and apparently we're not far behind. Dr. Alan Vaisman is an infectious diseases specialist and infection prevention and control physician, University Health Network. He joins us now with the signs and symptoms of a sixth wave and how to ride this one out. Welcome to the feed, Dr. Vaisman. Good to have you with us. Thank you for having me. So in your opinion, based on the data that you have reviewed, are we indeed heading toward a sixth wave or are we already there? I think it's clear that we are in the midst of a sixth wave. The big difference between what we're seeing now compared to what we saw in January is that this wave is appearing to develop much slower than before. This is probably due to the fact that many Ontarians likely just recently had COVID during the winter months as well as the fact that a lot of Ontarians are vaccinated and increasing numbers of triply vaccinated individuals. So it's it's pretty clear that we're going up the number of cases. What's not clear is how high we're going to peak and whether this wave is going to be associated with a significant number of deaths and hospitalizations, just like it was in the most recent wave in January. And yet at this point, we are seeing that hospitalizations for COVID-19 are up over 23% from last week, ICU increasing case counts. That's a real tough one because with PCR limitations, that kind of testing, we don't really know how many people have COVID-19 right now. That's correct. So the way we had things before, prior to December of 2021, testing a broad number of people, anyone who really wanted testing in the public was getting access to it. We're, We're not likely to ever return to that mode of testing. And most likely the future of COVID as it is now is that we would focus on the number of hospitalizations, ICU admissions, and deaths associated with COVID because those are the numbers and the hard outcomes that would truly justify any additional public health restrictions or mandates. We, we do test outpatients, generally speaking, and that's because for those high-risk individuals who are outpatients, there is a difference in management. So, for example, uh, changes in their treatment, which we can give before they get hospitalized to prevent bad outcomes. But for the general public, it's not generally going to make a big difference in their clinical outcomes, whether they are tested for COVID or not. Let's talk about BA2, the subvariant. How different is it from Omicron? So the, this is a subvariant of the Omicron variant that we saw here uh, in January that very quickly arose in, De- in uh, November of this past year in various parts of Africa and Europe, and then very quickly arrived here in North America, especially in Canada, by earlier mid-December. The BA2 subvariant is a subvariant of the Omicron. So to clarify, the, the variant that we saw earlier this year was called BA1. And the BA2 variant is thought to be perhaps more transmissible than the BA1 variant, but it is currently not thought to be more deadly or more uh, resulting in more further bad outcomes among patients. So it's hard to know how this will translate to, uh, what, you know, how many deaths and hospitalizations we're going to have this, this time around, because certainly the more number of people who are infected, the greater likelihood that will occur. But it is reassuring to hear that one-to-one comparison there isn't more death associated with BA2 compared to BA1. According to wastewater testing, cases are doubling every 10 days. I mean, that's that's a pretty big number, but I want to go back to what wastewater sampling and testing is all about. What is that? So the idea there is that whenever there is an increase in some kind of pathogen in the general population, and this includes not just respiratory viruses, which has been used for COVID, but also other bacteria that we are testing Uh, for other purposes like antibiotic-resistant organisms, that we see that consequence among people result in the wastewater. Uh, So you can actually test the water that comes out uh, that is, for example, in Toronto, that is dumped out into the river or into the lake um, that comes out of the general population's use of water. And it's interesting that it can signal uh, from there that numbers are rising. And it is kind of a precursor to the rise in numbers that we see amongst patients. So the clinical numbers come after the wastewater signal. So although the numbers in absolute terms are not helpful, 
In relative terms, they are very helpful, and they could signal a change in either declining or rising cases in patients. And why is it so indicative now? You know, we've heard about wastewater testing and data, but not as strongly as we have in the past few weeks. Why is this now suddenly become have become the big tool in terms of how to detect and how to predict? Well, I think you hit on that earlier, which is that we're not testing patients broadly anymore. We're not giving everyone access across Ontario access to the testing. So we have to use kind of other inferences to tell us about what's going on in the province. And the wastewater is one of those ways. And it's not invasive either in the sense that you have to test patients or do sentinel testing where you test, uh, you know, some sample of patients. It's basically very passive. You, you find out from the signals from the wastewater what's going on. If we did test every single you know, person who had symptoms or wanted to test across the province, we'd probably be focusing less on wastewater. But it's kind of a, a surrogate marker for that uh, in, in lieu of using the, the broad testing. A lot of people are wondering what a wave means now at this point. And some health experts have used the word wavelet, uh, which is a little odd when it comes to, you know, jargon and and using words that, that perhaps are not quite as medically sound as, as wavelet. But how would you describe what you think this wave could be in terms of impact on, on our health and on our movement forward and away from the pandemic? I think what we do know so far is that this is certainly a wave, and I would describe it as a slowly rising wave at this point. I guess the term wavelet is probably just describing that we may have a small wave, and if we look at the predictions from the Ontario Science Table, they certainly predict that it will not be as significant as the wave we saw in January, which was quite substantial. So in other words, in other words, the total number of cases and the total number of deaths and hospitalization is not likely to meet that very high number that we saw in January. So I guess the most accurate way to describe it is certainly a wave, a slow-moving wave, but the peak is really, it's really not clear where we're going to reach in terms of the peak. It seems that it's going to be sometime in mid or late April similar to previous year, actually in 2021 and in 2020, when we had previous peaks in those times. So it just remains to be seen how high we go. So, Dr. Vaisman, as an infection prevention and control physician with UHN, how do we protect ourselves? You know, I hearken back to BMO Field recently, where uh, Canada earned a berth at, at the World Cup of Soccer. And I looked at the packed stadium. Nobody had masks on because the mandate has been dropped. It was jam-packed, and one might see that as a super spreader, although it was a great show of patriotism, that's for sure, and love of soccer. But how do we protect ourselves now from this new wave? So similar to every other aspect of public health, we all do our own risk assessment. And for the last two years, we've been provided the tools for us to now do our own risk assessments. So that means using masks when people are in close proximity to each other in indoor settings, that means increasing our mask use when we see cases rising. That means staying away from public spaces when we ourselves are ill and taking extra precautions if we have vulnerable people living with us, for example, elderly or immunocompromised individuals. I think that's how we protect ourselves, similar to how we've discussed over the last few years. Hand hygiene is important, of course, as well. Vaccination is important, uh, making sure that we are, have our third doses and fourth doses for those who are eligible to receive it, and uh, you know, making sure that you're in well-ventilated settings. All the things that we've been discussing for two years are going to continue to apply. With regards to the you know, soccer game, <laughs> just to note there that outdoor transmission is just less, is much less common than indoor transmission. And the most important variable that predicts whether you pick up COVID is, is proximity. Yeah. The closer you are to somebody who has COVID, the more likely you pick it up. And within a meter is, is a very high risk. So keeping that in mind gives you kind of a sense of when masking is going to be very important and you know, what, what we should do going forward. What about schools? A lot of parents, caregivers, teachers, even the students themselves are a little worried. You know, the headlines all this week have read that we're, we're headed toward a spring wave, we're headed toward a, a sixth wave. What are your thoughts about how school kids and the school environment can remain as safe as possible? Yeah, that's uh, it's always a tricky one with kids because the, uh, the efficacy of masks isn't as well defined, especially when you're talking about a population where masks usage isn't as uh, well adherent, and the types of masks that kids wear sometimes is not uh, the best fitting or it's not the uh, highest grade of masks. The first thing, of course, is that any child who's five and older should be vaccinated against COVID. That's, that's the most important thing we can do. And children who are less than five, I think it's uh, going to be a judgment call for parents, depending on some of those variables we talked about earlier. So some areas of the province may start to see increased signals and again, the wastewater is one way to look at that, and that's publicly available data. If you do see an increase in cases in your area, 
if you do have vulnerable people in your home, if you do have a child who has medical comorbidities, those are all reasons I think it would, that would suggest that you should continue wearing masks with your child. And of course, you know, since September, since schools reopened, there's always been an increased focus on ventilation. So if parents continue to be concerned, it's always good to contact the school that the child is attending to make sure that the standards have been met, you know, to answer all their concerns, answer all their questions. But I think, it, again, it is all going, going to go back to an individual risk assessment. You know, when I first started to hear about the possibility of a sixth wave, a, a spring wave, and I don't ever want to make interviews about me, but I am going to tell you my first reaction was dropping the shoulders, a great big deep sigh of, oh, not again. You know, and I think a lot of people are feeling that way. We're so sick and tired of COVID. How do we keep going and how do we continue to to take the measures that are there in front of us and we understand to protect ourselves? You know, a lot of us just kind of want to go, what the heck with it? I, you know, bring it on and hopefully my immune system becomes stronger as a result. Yeah, that's totally understandable that we've faced this for two years and the whole thing gets very repetitive and the messaging gets very stale after a while. But we are in a different phase of the pandemic now because these restrictions, not just in Toronto, not just in Ontario, not just in Canada, across the world, in many like-minded countries like us in Northern Europe and the United States, many jurisdictions, they are not, it's very unlikely they're going to return to the same level of restrictions as we had earlier in the pandemic. And this is because a high number of a very, very high proportion of people are now vaccinated. So I think, although it is uh, a drag to have to go through this messaging over and over again, it is important to recognize that we're very unlikely to go back to where we were before. The, the big unknown, of course, is whether a, uh, another variant shows up that is far worse than Omicron. But barring that, knowing that this uh, wave that we're going through now is, is a type of Omicron, it is unlikely we're going to have to go backwards in terms of restrictions and mandates. But it does mean you still continue to be vigilant you know, wearing masks, using hand hygiene, keeping distance, not coming to work when you're sick, those are all the same principles that, we, that you should be applying that are nowhere near as tough on people as they were in the past. So although it's tough, I think people should recognize that it's not nearly as bad as it used to be. So Omicron is a variant and BA2 is a sub-variant of Omicron. If there is a sub-sub-variant, if you will, or a sub-variant of BA2, does it mean that as it as it, it continues to grow, I suppose, or, or morph, that it peters out because it becomes a sub-sub-sub variant? Well, it's not so much that it peters out because of the sub-variant. Sub you know, the thing is with this virus, it does mutate frequently. And when we say BA2, that's probably, probably referring to even a cluster of variants within BA2. But there's kind of these definitions that WHO has to outline a certain cluster of them as BA2 or a certain cluster of them as Omicron. But over time, if we move on from Omicron and move on to another variant, over time, it seems the trend so far has been that these variants have become less virulent. In other words, they are less, they're resulting in less deaths and hospitalization. Although they are more transmissible, that is something that is at least reassuring. And certainly this process is bound to occur. It's bound to go forward. We're going to see more and more mutations. But hopefully, as every day passes, more and more people across the world are, are vaccinated. And as that happens, there is less likelihood that something really bad develops in some part of the world that causes big problems again. So that's something to be hopeful about, that every single day that passes, more vaccination results in less likelihood of new variants showing up. We kind of have a label now for influenza. It's the flu, and we have the flu season, we have the flu shot. Will COVID ever end up being in a neat little box like that? That's a very good question. I think we've already seen a trend that the summer months are not the time when we would see peaks of COVID. And that was true in 2020 and 2021. So from June till approximately September and October, uh, we haven't seen waves so far. Uh, so I think we, we should very, we should highly anticipate waves to occur in December, January, February, and perhaps uh, smaller waves before and after that. But during the summer months, it would be very unlikely. And that's for the same reasons why we see flu season it has a lot to do with changes in our immune system as well as congregation. So I think the big question that's facing us now as a society is what are we, you know, this wave is going to be likely milder than January. We're going to pass it very quickly over the course of a few weeks. But the good question that everyone has to face is what do we do in November, December, January, given that COVID is just likely to become part of the milieu for the respiratory virus season? How many restrictions do we want to add on or mandates we want to come back to? That's going to be a big area of debate over the next few months. 
I hope we'll talk again, Dr. Alan Vaisman, infectious diseases specialist and infection prevention and control physician, University Health Network. Thank you so much for joining us on the feed. No problem. Thank you for having me. Next, how social media is playing a role in the war in Ukraine. Craig Robertson with that story. We've all seen the news on TV, the devastation of cities and buildings in Ukraine. But there's an invisible war going on as well on the web. Russia are trying to or threatening to erase Ukraine's digital history and the Ukraine with the help of the world are trying to stop it. Joining us is an associate professor of history from the University of Waterloo, Ian Milligan. Ian, thanks a lot for joining us today. Wonderful. Thank you for having me. So what exactly is Russia doing or threatening to do to Ukraine in this digital world? That's a great question. So I I think a lot of what I'm concerned about isn't necessarily a conscious plan by Russia, but it's just recognizing the fragility of information in a war. So, you know, when we think of our websites, you know, we go to, you know, the we go to a media website, we pull it up. It kind of feels like the web lives in the cloud. It's this magical thing and it floats out there. But of course, the websites that we visit, you know, and the social media feeds that we consume, et cetera, they all live on servers. And in a war, you know, servers in some ways are more vulnerable than paper. You know, if you we have a book, it's pages, it's hardbound. I hide that in an icebox or something, you know, maybe it could survive. But if I've got a server in the corner of the room and the power goes down, you know, the HVAC unit goes down, something happens, that server can disappear and that data can just be lost forever. So the fear is that without proper backups and even backups when your whole country is under threat is challenging. You you need to have backups like out of your country. The fear is that, you know, all of this digital information could be lost. Now, would the Russians potentially be targeting specific organizations or centers to erase data? I can give an example of an earlier an, an earlier thing that we saw. So this was, if we go back to the invasion of Crimea in 2014, um, when it was seized and then later put into Russia, um, you know, we there was a story of these gunmen, they seized the Crimean Center for Investigative Journalism. So it's this office, it's a media outlet. Gunmen show up into the, into the office and they're saying, hey, we're here to stop fake news. And staff in this building are worried about this. So they say, you know, we've got all of our, we've got servers here. We've got our back issues of our website going back years. And somebody actually contacts staff at the Internet Archive in San Francisco and says, hey, we need to have this backed up immediately. And so it's like half, you know, almost the other side of the world, people in San Francisco go, okay, the Crimean Center for Investigative Journalism, it's under threat. Let's download it. And within hours, you know, those videos are getting saved, the website content's being saved, and it's really this record that now a historian can go and look at that sort of, you know, citizen journalism as things were on the ground. And Ian, I often wonder when this data gets erased, all this information disappears, where does it go? Where does it eventually end up? Yeah, if it's preserved, I mean, if it's preserved, it might end up in web archives. So there's, um, you know, institutions around the world, the Internet Archive at archive.org is the most famous of these. Um, it's this, you know, nonprofit organization, this digital library in San Francisco, they're trying to create a backup of the whole internet. But also libraries. So like, you know, in, in Ottawa, Library and Archives Canada, they collect material, you know, the protests in Canada, they might grab material related to that. All over Europe, national libraries have said, hey, culture is not just books. It's not just dusty old tomes. It actually is these websites, it's TikTok videos, it's YouTube videos. We need to preserve all of that. You know, and I I think in a conflict zone, this kind of digital preservation is really important. So, you know, one of the famous stories we sometimes talk about is earlier, from the earlier part of the Ukraine conflict, when Malaysia Airlines Flight 17 was shot down in 2014, you know, the militant posted something on, on a social media site saying, hey, we just took down a large plane. Somebody preserved that, that uh, post. And then very quickly, that person deleted their post because it became clear that it wasn't a cargo plane that was shot down. It was a passenger airline that was shot down. Um, and it just underscores, you know, the potential legal uses of these, this, this material as well. Yeah. And as you say, data is very, very fragile in today's day and age. Is all data at risk? I mean, I think all data is at risk. Um, you know, all data is at risk unless we invest in the capacity to preserve it and we, we invest in the institutions that know what they're doing. So, you know, we invest in librarians, we invest in archivists to, to think about how to preserve data. Um, 
because hard drives fail, servers fail. Even if you put it in the cloud, it can fail. You've got cybersecurity threats. I think sometimes we've, we've, historians have tended to benefit from information being preserved by default. You know, somebody keeps something, we generate something, it ends up somewhere, nobody throws it out. And then a hundred years later, we say, hey, this is significant. But you can't do that with digital information. If you don't actively preserve it, if you don't pay your server fee, if you don't think about where it's going to go, it's going to end up on a hard drive. And then five years later, that hard drive is going to fail or that institution is going to fail or, you know, it's going to yeah, end up outside of your control. So I, I think it's, and this goes from, you know, Ukrainian, your cultural organization, you need to really worry about your data because there's bombs raining down on your server center. Um, but really everybody in the world needs to think consciously about their data and, you know, how they're going to preserve it. Ian Milligan is our guest. Ian is an associate professor of history at the University of Waterloo. Ian, we're living through the most documented conflict in history, videos, pictures, professional and amateur journalists on the scene. Uh, as far as social media is concerned, how is it in a historical sense playing part in, in what we're seeing? There's pros and cons to a social media sites and so much of our world being, you know, it's not on, it's on third party servers. Like Twitter, Twitter owns my life in a way that, you know, I don't own that data, right? Twitter.com has that data. That data is reasonably secure because it's going off to third parties. Um, and I do, as an aside, think that's going to be just fascinating as historians. You know, well, you know, even now I watch TikTok videos of people in Kiev and you get a sense of like, okay, yeah, that's what the bomb shelter looks like. That's what the grocery store looks like right now. But in the long run, you know, we, we're putting our data on TikTok, we're putting our data on YouTube, we're putting our data on, um, you know, Facebook. And, you know, the question is maybe in 50 years, some of those young people who are in Kiev are, you know, this is their record of this formative, horrible, traumatic moment they're going to. You know, what if Facebook falls apart? What if Twitter falls apart? What if YouTube in 20 years doesn't exist? And so I do think there's a role for historians and archivists and librarians right now to say, you know, this, this TikTok account is like a really, it sounds weird, but this is a real primary source. This is going to be really significant for people. Maybe we should make sure it's not just on the TikTok server. Maybe we should get this into the, the British Library or the Ukrainian National Library once they have more capacity. You know, it's really, it's sobering, right? It's sobering to realize that, you know, somebody in Kiev or someone in, you know, some of these contested regions loads up the Twitter app just the same as us, right? And can explain, you know, what they're seeing. And, and that the role that I think is played in mobilizing support. Like, I'm not a political scientist, I don't know, but I am pretty sure if we didn't have social media bringing us those images, you know, on a daily basis, I think the reaction would be a lot different than, than what we've seen. So what are the short-term implications to Ukraine? Assuming they're backing up their data, saving files, what are they doing right now on the ground to protect their digital footprint? Yeah, so it's been, you know, I think in the Ukraine, there's, they've got big things to worry about right now. And so, you know, the international community, those of us who are, you know, fortunate enough to be removed, there's been a real outpouring of support to try to do what people can do from afar to help preserve Ukrainian heritage when, you know, Ukrainians are dealing with this existential crisis to their country. And so there's a group, it's called the Saving Ukrainian Cultural Heritage Online Group, SUCHO. Uh, you know, if listeners are interested, it's at sucho.org. And it's this group of like librarians and archivists and researchers and programmers and developers. And I know, you know, they talk to each other. They're trying to figure out on the ground. They're trying to identify what's at risk in the Ukraine right now. What's the kind of thing that could disappear tomorrow and would be just devastating if it did. And so they're finding the sites. And that's often the hardest work is finding the sites. And then they are crawling it. They're sending those websites to be captured to the Internet Archive. And they're just grabbing, you know, gigabytes and gigabytes of information to make sure that if that server goes down, there will be a record. And then after the conflict, if need be, things could get recovered. And, and looking long-term, Ian, how difficult is it to reassemble all this data if there's gaps or some of it gets gets jumbled up? It must be very tricky. Re really, really tricky. So, I mean, that's the dilemma, right? If you've, you've got a you know complicated website database and then some of it gets preserved, in San Francisco at the Internet Archive, maybe other parts of it get preserved in other national libraries around the world. But, you know, I think if we've seen stuff from this outpouring of support in the world and the donations is that, you know, there would be a lot of people who would be willing to donate their time and expertise to make sure that that, that happened. Well, thanks a lot for doing this, Ian. Ian Milligan is an Associate Professor of History at the University of Waterloo. My pleasure. Thank you very much. For The Feed, I'm Craig Robertson.
After the break, is Electric Avenue in your future? Do you have a story idea for the feed? Call us at 416-335-1059 or email info at 1059theregion.com. Ann Romer and more of the feed coming up. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back to The Feed. I'm Ann Romer. After every winter, it's obvious how the snow and salt have done a real number on our roads. Kevin Frankish with The Fix from the CAA. It's that time of year again, the worst roads campaign. And it is put in spring on purpose because that's when we really notice what winter has done to our roads. Teresa DeFelice joins me now from uh, CAA. Uh, they are the ones, of course, who sponsor this wonderful campaign. I call it a wonderful campaign because I'm a traffic nerd. And I love the fact that you are giving a voice to the motorist. Hi, Kevin. Yes, it is a popular campaign and and it's a popular topic. Uh, you know, we did a survey in January of this year and 72 percent of Ontarians say they're talking about bad roads. They're just talking about it with their spouse or their family and friends they're not talking about it with local decision makers or local mm-hmm. politicians who have the power to fix the roads. And that's that's what happens with us, right? We complain and complain and complain, but we don't complain to the right people. So this is definitely a chance then for people at least to have their complaint heard by the right people. Correct. Not only are those municipalities or or politicians sort of looking to see what, what bubbles up to the surface, um, but at the same time, CA's advocacy team, you know, kicks into action. And we do a lot of work throughout the year on this issue. We're, we're raising these roads at budgets, uh, budget meetings and budget conversations or consultations um, and, and highlighting this issue about the need for investment in infrastructure and getting the roads fixed. And in particular, on the roads that made it to the top 10 or the top five in the regions. Um, you have a, a good advantage this year. We're coming into an election year, and if you want to try and get money out of a politician, this is the time to do it. For sure. Uh, You know, there have been several announcements about putting money into infrastructure, Uh, and I would say it's twofold this year. One is the election, and, and, you know, yes, politicians and the way, you know, politics sometimes works is they want to show their investments that they've making over a long term and, and what they've been working on since they've been elected the last time and why you should elect them again. Um, and, and so that's a key priority. But we're also coming out of, you know, two very difficult years of a pandemic. And, you know, the economy has taken a bit of a hit at times. There's a lot of other things happening in the world. Mm-hmm. Investing in infrastructure and, and fixing roads creates jobs. It's good for our economy. And it's the, the source of how we all get around and, and our goods and services are delivered. Oh, most definitely. Most definitely. Um, what kind of victories have you had with this campaign over the last 18 years? So it's exciting because we see success with the campaign in several different forms. You know, last year, the road that made it to the top of Ontario's list was Victoria Road in Prince Edward County. And, you know, it was it was a grassroots movement. It's, you know, a, a local farmer and some residents uh, just were determined to have that road fixed. And so they put up a big road sign on private property and, and encouraging anybody going by and, and the local community to vote for Victoria Road in the Worst Roads campaign. And they were so successful that it did make it to the top of the list. Um, that region came out and said that they were investing quite a bit of money into fixing 75 kilometers of roadway in the region. That announcement came uh, shortly after the, the Worst Roads list came out. And they're not the only one. Windsor, we saw the same thing. Laws and Parkway, um, you know, was on the regional list. The mayor came out in June and dedicated $8 million to fixing that road over the next 16 months from from June. Um, You know, these are success stories where uh, people want to be seen to be acting on what they're hearing from their constituents and the communities and want to fix those pain points. And it also reminds us that Ontario stretches beyond the GTA. You know, we we definitely, you know, vote rich GTA gets all the attention, but we forget that there's Windsor and London and Peterborough and Ottawa and Sudbury and North Bay and Timmins as well. Yeah, it's a big campaign, which is why we put out an annual 
um, Ontario worst roads list. So, you know, what bubbled up to the top 10, but, you know, we recognize that sometimes population size means you could have, uh, you know, voting power just to have, you know, once upon a time, most of the roads on the list were all from Toronto or mm-hmm. the GTA, but now we see these movements where people are using the campaign to their advantage to highlight their pain points, to highlight, you know, what they want echoed to decision makers. And so some of these grassroots movements within communities to, to get roads highlighted are working. And so um, they're not all, all GTA based or Toronto based. And the actual fact that we do a regional list covers off to make sure that, that the people who are taking the time to vote know that they've been heard as well. Do you find sometimes that it's much easier to pass the buck when it comes to our roads uh, just because it can fall under so many different jurisdictions, you know, such as let's use Highway 7 through York Region as an example. There are some portions of it that are provincially run. There are some portions that are run by the region. There are some portions that are run by local municipalities as well. And so do you find yourself going somewhere and say, well, that not my not my uh, jurisdiction? It has happened in the past. Um, an old favorite on the Ontario Worst Roads list was Steeles Avenue. Mm. And Steeles Avenue ran through several municipalities uh, and who had to really coordinate what to fix that road. And there were so many issues going on. Obviously, you know, cross-border, yeah. even within municipalities, can, can be challenged by a whole range of topics and negotiations. And so that road was on the list for several years. Yeah. Because it just it became a little bit of a, a hot potato in terms of uh, the negotiations or what needed to be done to fix that stretch of road. We also see this between uh, some roads that are regional government versus municipal or regional government versus senior levels like provincial or federal. So those ones can be a little bit harder uh, to address in a much quicker time frame, but they address, they do get, they do happen. <laughs> now the provincial government recently announced a billion dollars over five years for road improvement. Is that enough? Uh, you know, it's, it's a great investment and obviously, you know, just by the, your listeners and a lot of people in Ontario, more is always good. Uh, you know, we are a little bit limited in terms of uh, uh, the stretch of time because of winter of when we can fix roads. Um, we, we do have a big deficit in this province, and it's really hard on municipalities to to, you know, put a lot into it on any given year. They've got lots of other demands. The municipal government covers a lot of responsibilities and the tax base doesn't grow as quickly mm-hmm. as the other levels of government or it doesn't grow by as much. Otherwise, we'd all be squawking about an, another problem, which yeah. would be very significant property taxes. And so this is why CA also advocates to senior levels of government to create um, sustainable funding that, that municipalities and regions can depend on, either you know, in, in timed limits like five-year periods or you know, not so much based on an application, but just recognizing that the majority of roads are under municipal jurisdiction. And how can people vote? So, you know, this is you can vote from your mobile device. You can vote from your computer. Um, You would go to CAAWorstRoads.com. You have until April 19th to do so. Don't do so while you're driving. Be safe. Um, (laughs) We want to make sure that you're not driving distracted. But you can also upload pictures if it's a road you frequent and and happen to be able to get out of your car safely and and take pictures. Or you can vote using the the, the Google service on, on the website. All right, Teresa, thank you so much for this. My pleasure. Teresa DeFelice from uh, the CAA. Does the rising cost of gas have you thinking about going electric? Jim Lang with the results of a new poll. Well, I mean, the price of gas doesn't seem to be going anywhere but up. It goes down a little bit, but basically we're paying way, way more than before. And it's really changing people's minds about their car purchases for the future in this country. To talk more about it, thrilled to be joined by Peter Hatches, the National Automotive Sector Leader from KPMG in Canada. Peter, how are you? I'm pretty good, Jim. Thank you. Well, thank you. I I know last year, uh, my family bought a new vehicle. We bought a hybrid because we were concerned about the price of gas. And from some of your research, Canadians are going even beyond hybrid and looking at straight electric now. Yeah, we, we did a survey recently regarding uh, fuel price increases, and I was surprised to find that of our respondents, 
you know, 61% said that, you know, soaring prices and vulnerability have convinced them it's time to buy an EV. And 51% say they will never buy a gas-powered vehicle again. So, yeah, it's really had an impact. And I think that's coupled with rising prices and inflation generally. I know for like after driving the hybrid for the last almost last year, I'll never buy a straight gas powered vehicle again. I'm I'm sold. Like hybrid has been a revelation. And the only reason I didn't get electric was the cost. How much of a hindrance is the cost of a pure electric to Canadians or are they willing to pay more because of the price of gas? Uh I don't think Canadians are that enthusiastic about paying more, and I think they're facing a lot of pricing pressures. What we have, though, is uh, a development that I think is very positive. Number one, we're going to see a lot more choice in electric vehicles. I think in the past, pure electric vehicles have been relatively expensive. Um, you know, at least in some cases, $100,000 or more, and Canadians don't, don't want to spend that kind of money. They're expecting to pay a lot less, number one. And number two, with the investment that the big uh, three automakers, uh, including uh, Fiat Chrysler, Ford, and GM, are making in the next three years, there's going to be an extremely significant, uh, you know, improvement in the in availability of, of electric product. And hopefully they'll achieve economies of scale and make those cars more affordable for the average purchaser. And I keep seeing a lot of stories in the news cycle about battery plants and electric vehicle plants. It's, it's, it's become commonplace. Before it was very exotic. Now it seems like a regular vehicle choice for Canadians when they start shopping. It, it's it's going to be like that, and I think the OEMs are hoping that it's going to be like that because they've invested a lot of money in it. Um, and I think, you know, Ontario is going to benefit from it. There was a recent announcement about, you know, uh, a facility that's going to be built in Ontario uh, by Stellantis via Chrysler. Um, I think that's very important for the province, and I think it's very good for the economy generally. And again, I, I think what we're going to see is more choice. I think you're going to see an improvement in battery technology gradually so that that range anxiety that people have, they still have it, by the way, uh, generally fades away. And I'm glad you brought that up because that was my next point, the range anxiety for the batteries, especially with the climate and it's so cold. Do we have enough charging stations? What are our next steps as a, as a province, as a nation, to get rid of that anxiety and people buy an electric car and not even worry about it? Yeah, Jim, and in the, in, the, in the surveys that we've done in the past, you know, respondents have told us they they typically expect to wait about the same time they wait for a gas-powered engine at, at a refueling station, if you will, seven minutes. And they don't want to wait anymore. You know, people are not accustomed to planning their trips, you know, way ahead of time, number one. And number two, um, you know, they don't want to run into a situation, particularly with cold weather, where, you know, they have to wait a long time to refuel a car or have the car impacted by cold weather, its uh, its range and its ability to, to perform. So these things uh, will be overcome eventually. Uh, I know that Tesla, Tesla recently announced in their sports car, it's got a thousand kilometer range, which is quite impressive, quite impressive. And so, you know, these things eventually... Um, you know, solve themselves because the market and the consumers demand that they have uh, sort of the creature comforts that they enjoy with gas-powered engines. Speaking to Peter Hatches, the National Automotive Sector Leader, KPMG in Canada, about a fascinating poll they've done about Canadians' attitudes towards electric vehicles in this country. And and I think even, I get the impression, Peter, now you correct me if I'm wrong, even if gas prices start to go down, Canadians' attitudes towards hybrid vehicles, electric vehicles, have had such a paradigm shift that even if gas prices go down, they're still going to be looking at hybrid and electric. Yes, I think in, in our survey, Jim, Canadians are uh, sus, you know not not necessarily believing that you know uh, the new normal is going to be low again. I think they think this is the new normal, and there's volatility in the fuel price. People don't like it. The other thing about an electric car is that the maintenance costs theoretically lower because it's got a lot fewer moving parts. Ah, right. You don't change oil, you know, all that stuff. So it's cheaper. Yeah, no, I never thought about that. Yeah, so you don't have to worry about, you know, the rad and all that kind of stuff that goes with it with a regular car. Yeah, I never even thought about that. And, and you know, I'm at first, when I first saw a Tesla or electric vehicle, I go, oh, wow, that's an electric vehicle. Now I see so many, Peter, I don't know about you, it's, it's not a big deal anymore. It's, it's less of a big deal. The statistics will show us that 
uh, you know, 6% of Canadians that, that we surveyed just ordered an EV in the past month, uh, which is higher than it's ever been. But again, I think that's a function of availability too. Um, you know, in the past, we haven't had much choice. So I think you are going to see more. You see more in different regions of the country or different regions of North America. You know, you'll see a lot, a lot of Tesla products in California, for instance. Um, and so, you know, people will adapt to it. I do think the one issue that you raised around cold weather, inclement weather, and the other thing that people don't think about is, um, you know, we drive a lot of trucks and a lot of SUVs. They're heavy. Mm-hmm. You know, batteries got to lug around. They got to do the job of a combustion engine by lugging around a lot of stuff in the back of a pickup truck. You know, that remains to be seen how that's going to work out. It's interesting. It's a great point. And I'm also, I don't know about you, but I'm also seeing a lot of municipal and city vehicles that are gone electric. So it's, it's, it's like you see them driving around so much like, hey, I'm, I guess my turn is next. And, and you brought up a great point earlier that the big, big manufacturers now are offering these range of vehicles. And the more, I mean, to me, it just makes economic sense. The more range, more options, the price point is going to go down and make it a little more palatable for a lot of Canadians. Yeah, I think, I think, Jim, we have to, they have to achieve economies of scale. Remember, the the OEMs, the automotive manufacturers, are a well-oiled machine. When they build cars, they build a lot of them, and they build them quickly, and they build them efficiently. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And they can't build in small quantities and make the price you know, competitive. So hopefully we're going to see the benefits of mass manufacturing on price. It's going to be fascinating, and it's a fantastic survey. My compliments to you and your team, Peter, but we will be seeing so many hybrid vehicles, electric vehicles uh, in the future in Canada. We'll forget a time when it was before that. You know what I mean? Like, oh, do you remember we just drove a straight gas vehicle? No, I don't, but yeah, I used to. It'll be one of those. Right. Well, yeah, people forget forget quickly and you know we we are accustomed to i think as a nation in, in in adopting technology quicker than we used to because we got more of it yeah absolutely yeah absolutely peter thank you so much for doing this great insight great survey and a great glimpse into the future of canadians i really appreciate it thanks jim coming up help for first responders and frontline workers follow us on twitter at 1059 the region Ann Romer and more of the feed after the break. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back. First responders attending devastating scenes like car accidents, shootings, explosions, and fires put their lives on the line no matter what the risk. Superheroes, yes, but also they are human beings. They feel the effects of what they've been witnessing more deeply and profoundly than any of us could ever imagine. Think back to that massive house fire in Brampton this past week where precious lives were lost. First responders, dedicated to helping people, but who helps them when they need it? Runnymede Healthcare Centre recently announced it would be building a first-of-its-kind in Canada dedicated rehabilitation and treatment centre for first responders and frontline healthcare workers who are suffering from PTSD. Connie Dijak is Runnymede's CEO. She joins us now on the feed. Thanks for being with us, Connie. And thank you so much for having me. Very exciting news and, and really a tribute to our first responders and our frontline workers, helping them with their health issues. Tell me the concept of all of this. Runnymede Healthcare Centre is a uh, rehabilitation hospital, as you mentioned earlier in your intro, in Toronto. And um, I am the CEO. Uh, I am also, uh, my husband is a 33 or was a 33-year veteran of Mississauga Fire. He was a captain at Mississauga Fire Department, and he had um, experienced a very traumatic event, he and his crew, and uh, really our lives changed from there. Um, we discovered that he, um, he was exposed to something that started to trigger all of these events that he had seen and had gone through in his 33-year history as a firefighter, and I found it very challenging to find appropriate services and programs um, to help him and the others that were with him on his crew. Wow. So how, Connie, do you pull all of this together, your experience and the experience of so many frontline workers and, and first responders, how do you pull it all together and create something like what you have, a Canada's first treatment center for first responders suffering from post-traumatic stress injury? 
Well, really, if it's post-traumatic stress injury, we recognize, and the reason why we're saying it's PTSI as opposed to PTSD, is it really is an on-the-job injury. And so if it's an on-the-job injury, then we're looking at it through the rehab lens, and we're looking at either back to work or back to life. And what we like to say is we're serving those who have proudly served us. It's a really good way of putting it. So my understanding is that that an assessment center will be created in Toronto and a treatment center will be uh, in Caledon. Can you give us an idea of what it is that, that you see? What's your vision for those two centers? Absolutely. So the we're we're calling the um, the uh, outpatient center in Toronto Station Thirty Four Thirty Four, mm-hmm. and at Station Thirty Four Thirty Four, there will be a full access and continuum of care ranging from assessment, intensive treatment. It will be outpatient, so they will come in for their treatment, um, work back to work programming, and uh, meeting with their healthcare provider, their professional, and they will be returning back to their homes in the community. And Caledon is an inpatient treatment facility. Often there is uh, addictions which is associated with PTSI. And what we're going to be doing in Caledon is allowing uh, up to two to three months stay so that we can properly and, and provide the intensive treatment and care that's needed by first responders so that they can transition back to the community or transition to Station 3434. There will be a full continuum where they will be followed. There will be navigators to make sure no one falls through the cracks and to make sure they're supported either through outpatient or through virtual care as well. And that there's no shame in this and admitting that you need help. So that leads me to my next question. How is it that you're Will be you will be able to reach out to those who need help, or how can they find a way to to get the help? We have a very unique governance model, so we're looking at providing the right care at the right time in the right place. We're also working with all of the associations, which are firefighter association, police association, uh, and also command. They're very different in their focus and scope. The fact that we have the associations or the unions on side working side by side with us, they really truly have the needs of their membership as command does, but with a different focus. They are going to be sitting and advising us on what programs are needed And then, of course, our specialists will be providing those programs. So you're talking about firefighters, paramedics, medical personnel, police officers, correction officers. Are we now also looking at healthcare workers who have been on the front lines through this pandemic? The pandemic has changed. It was a very demanding job for frontline healthcare workers previously, but we've seen an increase in uh, stress-related experiences operational stress injuries like PTSI, uh, which can lead to conditions like anxiety and depression and addiction, both in the healthcare field and also with first responders, as we know. So we did, uh, the scope has widened and we have now, we will now be including uh, frontline healthcare workers in that catchment, uh, in that, in, in our, and who we will serve. We are watching as the world is dealing with so many terrible issues across halfway around the world in Ukraine and and other countries that are being affected by the war in Ukraine. Will you at some point be also helping or reaching out to members of the military? You know, my hope is that this is replicated across Canada. Mm. We want to make sure that we invest in research. We want to make sure that we eliminate stigma, but that we look at preventative measures, that we have a critical mass where we can study this and ultimately look and understand better what signals and what triggers PTSI so that we can prevent it before it ever began. And part of that is to make sure that the stigma is reduced and that we have a facility that is dedicated to first responders and frontline healthcare workers to meet their needs, their complex needs. Connie, how prevalent is PTSI among 
the, the groups that you're talking about among firefighters and paramedics, correction officers, police? Well, you know, and if you look at what they're exposed to on a regular basis, life-threatening disasters, explosions, uh, transportation accidents, this is over time, you know, the uncertainty of even public perception that police officers have to uh, deal with, you know, in, in uncertain times. These are, these are stresses that build up and oftentimes just eat away at the mental health and well-being of the individual. So I can tell you that there are a number of programs that are out there This is the first time we are building a dedicated facility that is going to treat either the addictions that come with the mental health disorders and operational stress uh, symptoms that are presented and or a outpatient treatment center. The first time. So I would say that not only do we know it's prevalent, COVID has just brought this to the forefront. I want to ask you, and I hope it's not too personal, we began this interview with you telling us about your husband and his struggles. May I ask how he is today? Oh, he's absolutely wonderful. I, uh, he took an early retirement, and uh, he's coping. He's great. You know, I joke and say that he has a handicap of five. So for those of you who golf, know that that's a very nice place to be. He's actually teaching. He's gotten. He's no longer a firefighter, but he's actually teaching, and so he's not facing those daily triggers that one would have to face if he, you know, was back on the truck and directing his crew. Wow. All right. The headline reads: Runnymede Healthcare Centre launching Canada's first treatment centre for first responders and frontline workers suffering from post-traumatic stress injury. Connie Dijak. President and CEO of Runnymede, thank you for your time, thank you for your vision, and thank you for caring. And thank you so much for exposing this really this crisis that we now face in, in healthcare and also with first responders. And I look forward to the groundbreaking and seeing you there. <laughs> I will be there. Thank you, Connie. <laughs> thank you. If you missed any part of our show, please go to 1059theregion.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Audible. I'm Ann Romer. Thank you for listening.